The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Well, good morning. If we haven't met before, I'm Dave Tate. I'm the high school pastor here at TBC. And we're going to be at James 1 this morning. And that was Abby Greeson. That is the wife of TJ Greeson. We've been doing a, a series called A New Chapter. And we're looking at a different chapter each week, kind of like playing the Bible's greatest hit, so to speak. And um, we're doing a video each week, just having someone in our church share why they love that, that chapter. And so that was Abby Greeson, and she failed to mention in the video that they're expecting in late January. So give them a big clap for that. That's really exciting news. We're so happy for them. And you guys can go ahead and turn to James chapter 1. And I want to explain my title this morning, Gospel on the Ground. Let's go back. There we go. Uh, so I talked about Romans chapter 8 uh, two weeks ago. And if you look at the writings of Paul, Romans 1 through 8, everyone knows that Paul likes to use like high and lofty theological language when he writes. And so some have called the writings of Paul kind of like the gospel in the air, like giving us this big picture of what God has accomplished um, in us and through us because of the, the gospel. But James has been called the gospel on the ground. This is like the effects of the gospel, how the gospel is played out in someone's life. And so we're going to look at that this morning. And, uh, but first, before we get into the, the text, let's talk about the author. Who was James? Well, after Mary gave birth to Jesus, Mary and Joseph had more kids. And uh, there are four other sons at least two, and at least two daughters. James is one of their sons, so he is the half-brother of Jesus. As we read about the ministry of Jesus in the gospels, we we're aware of the conflict that would happen between Jesus and the Pharisees, even Jesus and the disciples, but we don't hear much about his family in the Gospels. And we might picture them kind of standing on the sidelines of his ministry, you know, quietly cheering him on, but that was not so. If you look over in Mark chapter 3, after Jesus heals a, this guy, this large crowd has now um, assimilated and accumulated, and it says this about this event. It says, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. So you've seen those shows where they stage an intervention in the family. This is what Jesus's family wants to do. They want to intervene and say, stop with all this crazy talk. And uh, if you look down at uh, John chapter seven, it says, for not even his own brothers believed in him. And they maintain this view all the way through his public ministry. They are hardly mentioned in the Gospels. So what you would imagine this, even though they don't, even though they don't believe that he's God, they're still a, a devoted Jewish family. And they, they pray to God. They pray to Yahweh. So they might be praying to God the Father about God the Son and, and praying that he would just snap out of it. This is the, the viewpoint of his family as Jesus does his ministry. But by the start of Acts, we see this dramatic change where after his ascension, his family is listed right along with the disciples praying and worshiping together. So why this sudden change? Well, what would cause someone to have this change of mind after years and years of not believing? And so for James, it's been over 30 years that he's known his brother and he hasn't believed he's the Messiah. And so I think it comes down to the resurrection because in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul's talking about the resurrection, it says, then he, meaning Jesus, appeared to James 
and then to all the apostles. This is his brother being mentioned here. So Paul tells us after he arose that Jesus goes and appears to his brother James, and I want you to let that, let that reunion sink in for a moment. What a powerful picture that would be of his brother who didn't believe throughout his entire life that he was the Messiah, and as he heard about the miracles and heard about the teachings and even heard some of the teachings for those three years of ministry, he still did not believe his brother was the Messiah, and now he's face-to-face with him, seeing the resurrected Christ, and not only is he excited to see his brother again, but now he realizes that he is who he said he was. And just imagine for a moment the, the emotions that James must have had as they had this reunion there. So Paul would later go on to call James a pillar of the early church. And he lived up to that name because in 62 AD, he was captured by Jewish religious leaders. He was taken to the top of the temple and they threw him off, but he didn't die because James is stubborn like that. And they pick up stones and and clubs and begin to, to beat James to death. And so early in life, he doubted, but by the end of his life, he believes to the point of death. So he goes from doubter to believer to pillar because Jesus had big plans for his little brother. So look with me in James chapter one, verse one, where it says, James, a servant of God, notice what he calls himself, not brother, but servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion greetings. So who's he writing to? He's writing to these scattered Jewish Christians all over the known world, and many are suffering for their faith. If you recall in Acts chapter 8, when Stephen, the first martyr, was put to death, a great persecution arose against the church, scattering Christians all over the known world. I think of how that relates to many of our Ukrainian friends right now as they are suffering immensely in their country. Many are being dispersed all over the world, and some are here, of course, with us, worshiping with us this morning. But when you think about that, as it relates to back then, as these Jews are, Jewish Christians are scattered all over the world, and many are suffering for their faith, James writes to address a host of practical issues. So they're trying to live out their faith now in a place after experiencing suffering and persecution, and they're in a hostile culture that might be against their faith, and James writes to address a host of practical issues, and this is why I think we can call this the gospel on the ground. This is where, uh, you know, James comes from a blue-collar family, and so the way he writes is more direct, more blunt, more down-to-earth, and so we'll see how he unpacks um, how this gospel is lived out in our lives as it relates to several different kinds of issues. So the gospel and suffering, verse two, where it says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Trials are a matter of when, not if. And he talks about trials of various kinds. This means all kinds of trials. These are trials that might result from you being a Christian. These might be trials because it just happens to be Thursday and it's just going to be a bad day. And so these are trials of all different uh, various shapes and sizes. And, uh, but no matter what, I think James is clear, suffering is always 
a test of faith. There are so many people in our body right now that I think about, and many are suffering. And it can feel like the, the walls of life are closing in around us. And just when you think it, it can't get any worse, it does. And I think about that person as I think about the, that phrase, count it all joy. Like, how's that person supposed to read that text? Does that mean you just put on a, a happy mask, a, a facade of joy despite deep sadness and grief? Well, James isn't talking about how we should feel, but how we should think about suffering. And it is possible, I think, to be extremely sad and to be in deep grief, but still see what God is doing through it and with it. So how do we count it all joy? Well, we can count it as joy, not because we like the process, but because we have a greater desire for the end results. So look down at the, at the passage again. In the midst of great suffering, we can still know that God is creating in us something called steadfastness. And that word means it's like a strength, like, like a perseverance and an endurance. I know there are many people in here that, that you, you love to work out, or maybe you love to run just for the sake of running. You're one of those weird people. Listen, I've never loved running for the sake of running. I, I love sports growing up, and I saw running kind of like a necessary evil. I needed a ball to chase after. But a few years ago, my wife talked me into running a little bit more, and at first, I hated it. But now I do it several times a week. And, and someone from the outside might look at me and say, you know, Dave just must love to run. And I, I still kind of hate it, actually. But what changed? Well, I started to feel different. I started to see some results from it. And it turns out, you don't have to love running. You just seem to love the results. And this is how we have to approach suffering, I think. We don't have to love the process. We just need to love the results. I love what Sam Albury says. He writes, it is suffering that proves, strengthens, and deepens our faith. Faith is a little like a muscle in the human body. It is, as it is worked out, that it grows. It needs something to push against. Muscle growth requires discomfort. Faith needs the pushback of trials for us to grow spiritually. The definition of suffering is that it always feels like something is being taken from us or subtracted from our lives. We may have lost a friendship or a relationship or lost someone to death or missed out on an opportunity, but suffering always feels like there's been a subtraction. But look at what verse 4 says, what it tells us. It says, when steadfastness is allowed to have its full effect, we are made more complete, lacking in nothing. So there is this addition by subtraction. And then through that subtraction, something deeper, something more profound is then added to our lives. It's really a gaining by losing. This is why you'll hear people that are going through extreme suffering, like the kind that we just can't comprehend, say things like, you know, I just, I, I just had this peace. Or I've never sensed God's presence like this before. 
I think of this past Friday, I went to Arlington to see some old friends. You guys don't know the story, but over 20 years ago, a youth pastor in Arlington just invited me to come to Texas to intern with him for one year. End up being like, I'm not here for 25 years or whatever it is, and, and doing a full-time ministry. And this man like mentored me and discipled me for the better part of five years in the early days of my um, college days and, and seminary days. And he's now retiring from his job at a church. And several of us got together to just go spend time with him and his wife and just kind of celebrate their, um, their ministry. And it was almost like he was offended a little bit. Like he's like, listen, I'm not retiring. Okay, I'm going to continue doing ministry. And so we celebrated them on Friday evening up there in Arlington. And listen, his wife has had just 20 years of just continual bouts with suffering. And then a few months ago, she took a fall and hit her head and had a brain bleed, almost died from it. And at that point, he realized, like, I've got to stay home with her. I've got to resign from the church, but just find other ways to continue ministering to people. And so we're at his house on Friday, and now what he's, he's turned his whole backyard into this, like, kind of oasis for him to you know, even host weddings there, do weddings, but also do some counseling so he can be home with his wife most of the time. And it was a great testimony of someone who's experienced suffering for the last couple of decades, really, but then insisting on finding ways to let God use it and continue ministry in spite of it. And you'll hear them say things like, listen, like we have, we have this peace like, we know God's going to get us through this, this next set of trials. And it's so encouraging to hear people when they say those kinds of things. But what does God add to our lives through suffering? Well, I think of several things. There is a desperation for his presence. Maybe we pray with more urgency. His word gains more traction in our lives. Whenever you and I open up the scriptures, whenever we're going through a time of suffering, hopefully the words just leap off the page a bit more when you're walking through those things. We begin to find less satisfaction in the things of this world. So suffering is always a loss. It always is. But James says something is gained in that loss. British pastor F.B. Meyer writes, trials are God's vote of confidence in us. Now, we don't go looking for trials, of course. Suffering by itself isn't good, but what God can accomplish in us through suffering is good. I'm going to summarize for you uh, verses 5 through 8, because James seems to change the subject. It looks like he's talking about suffering. Now let's talk about wisdom. But this is not a change of subject, because what do we most need in times of suffering? We need wisdom. When do we make our worst decisions? usually in times of suffering. I also think about many of my students and families I've seen go through various things throughout the years here at TBC. And what I would say to any parent or any student is that when you're walking through a really tough situation, you've got to be on guard. Because that's the moment where when you're walking through painful circumstances that that you are most prone to making your, mo- your, your, your most unwise decisions because you're trying to find a way to pacify the pain. You're looking for an, ex- an escape from the pain, and we never choose good things when we're looking for an escape. And so James, I think, importantly brings up, brings up wisdom and says you need wisdom when you're going through suffering. 
And he says, if we ask God for wisdom, God's going to generously give it. But how we ask for it is so important. He says we have to ask in faith and not doubt. Now, why is he lecturing us about doubt? Well, people have doubts when they suffer, but this is a different kind of doubt. This is a double-mindedness, meaning a person that has split loyalties. We might say, you know, fickle or two-faced. That's the person he's describing here. This person likes to, you know, hedge their bets with one foot in the worldly wisdom and one foot in God's wisdom, and they want to, you know, go with the most convenient option for the moment. That's the person he's describing here. He says, this person is unstable in all their ways. It's going to lead to an instability in their life if they choose to live this way. Then skip down to verse 9. The gospel and wealth, where it says, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. So once again, it it looks like he's changed the subject. You know, first suffering, then wisdom. Now let's talk about money. But he's not changed topics because our economic situation might influence how you and I respond in times of trials. The, the impoverished person is tempted towards certain things in times of trials. The wealthy person is tempted towards certain things in times of trials. And in verses 9 through 10, James encourages people to boast. Now, we normally discourage any kind of boasting. This is not a boasting in ourselves, but a boasting in the gospel he's talking about here. In other words, to, to boast in what God's done for you. We don't boast in our financial position. We boast in our spiritual position. So the poor person might feel lowly based on worldly standards, but in Christ, they're exalted. They're lifted up. And for the rich person, they're maybe tempted to think you know, highly of themselves because of what they have, what they've accumulated. And this is a reminder that, no, no, in Christ, we're all humiliated because we all need him. Like, we can't just stack things around our life and think that's going to protect us from our need for a Savior. And so I love the language that that James uses here. Now, um, about a month and a half ago, I led a mission trip with our high school students to Houston, and it was a great trip. And about the last four hours of the last day, we let them have a little bit of fun. They they got to go to um, the Houston Galleria and, and see all the things that they can't afford. And uh, so they enjoyed going into some of these shops and stuff. Some are buying like little gifts for family and whatnot, but others are going into like the really high-end shops, and they just loved gawking at the price tags in some of these stores. They loved putting on the shirt that costs like $2,000 to realize it's a lot like the shirt they have from Ross or Marshalls. It feels the same, you know? And uh, I took a couple of photos of this is a shoe that um, is, it's an Adidas shoe, but it's like Gucci and Adidas got together and had this little shoe together, you know? And, uh, and I turned the shoe over, and it's got a price tag for $950. And then in the same shop, the next rack over, there's this Gucci and Adidas jacket, and I flipped the price tag over, and this thing is close to $3,000, 
Now listen, if I'm paying that much money for a jacket, it better be the finest leather that money can buy, right? And so our students are looking at these, these items and just thinking like, oh my gosh, like who, who actually buys these things? Who, who can afford to buy this and live this kind of lifestyle? But when you think about if you can go into a store and drop that kind of coin on that, that kind of clothing, you probably feel pretty confident about your life, Right? And that might translate over into how you feel spiritually like, I don't really think I need anybody else to help me with anything. You feel fairly self-confident, fairly um, independent if that's the kind of life that you live. And so when I think of that image and what my students were experiencing as they, they saw all this, we think about this passage, like where will all these things end up? James compares them to a flower in the desert. Now, I know this is hard for you to imagine, but in the Middle East, the sun is very hot with little to no rain. And as quickly as the flower blooms, the flower can also fade away. And this is a picture of our possessions. So whatever car you're coveting right now still goes to the junkyard. Now, it might be a really nice junkyard, but if you look back at at verse 10... I want you to notice this isn't just about the things, but it's about the person. It says the person fades away. And so if someone lives their life for possessions, for wealth, for money, refusing to ever accept the humiliation that's offered to us in Christ and in the gospel, that that person will begin to fade away, just like the things that they possess and they'll begin to corrode. What James is saying is that the gospel should affect the wealthy because it makes us realize no matter how rich we are materially, we are bankrupt spiritually. We're only saved because God's been generous. So spiritually speaking, we all need a handout, and we get to boast in that reality. I want to summarize for you verses 12 to 13 where James talks about how the gospel helps us remain steadfast in a trial and the gospel prevents us from blaming God for the trial. And so skip down to verse 14 where we talk about the gospel and temptation. James 1, 14 to 15, where it says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to death. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So the trials around us can bring all kinds of temptations within us, and we're tempted to blame God, we're tempted to blame the trial. I heard a preacher once say that my circumstances may be the occasion for my sin, but they're not the cause of my sin. So James describes this process of temptation kind of like conception. Whenever we feed our sinful desires, it's just going to grow and grow and grow, finally giving birth to sin, then it just grows up and kills us spiritually. I thought of an analogy in relation to this. This is the the famous scene in Finding Nemo where there's the anglerfish. And the female anglerfish has the the light. You may remember the the famous scene in that movie where the light just, other fish see the light. They're drawn to the light. They're just drawn to this warm, fuzzy light. And then next thing they know, they're being eaten and being destroyed by this fish. This is the cartoon version of it. This is the real life version of that fish. One of the ugliest fishes I've ever seen, Right? And, but this, I think, is a great analogy for what sin does. Sin has this way of drawing us in, luring us in, 
only to destroy us in the end. And many believe, if I just give in this one time, I'm going to get it out of my system, and this is not how it works. We've got to fight sin at its conception. J.C. Ryle once wrote, habits like trees are strengthened by age. A boy may bend an oak when it's a sapling, but a hundred men cannot root it up when it's a full-grown tree. That's why it's so important for us to put sin to death in our youth. Many think, well, you know, I'm not going to be tempted in these ways when I'm an adult or when I'm married one day. But if sin is allowed to grow up, it's going to become immovable in our lives. And this is why James spends the next few verses in verses 16 to 18 talking about deception and how we see God, how we view God. Because in the middle of a trial, we're going to be tempted to question God's goodness. In the Romans 8 sermon two weeks ago, I talked about this external and internal battle with sin. And this is the internal battle. Like how you view God, how you see God in the midst of a trial is at the center of that internal battle. As you recognize that God can be trusted, God is a good God. He's not holding out on you. And so how we view him, how we see him is essential as we fight against that in that internal battle against sin. And then skip down to James 119. This is the gospel and emotion. He says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. So let's state the obvious. We are slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to be angry. And I love how he says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God because most of the time whenever you and I get angry in our own human-centered, man-centered way, We are trying to bring about righteousness. And James says, it never actually does that. Now, if I was trying to help people with their anger problem and their use of words when they're angry, I might develop something that would allow them like immediate access to as many of their friends as possible a place where they could say whatever they want with little to no filtering whatsoever, but also allow a place where their friends could affirm their anger and be equally outraged. And that might spur everyone towards godliness. And so when I think about what social media has created, what I've heard from other people and what I've come to see in my own, in my own life is that most of us don't go to social media for ideas. We go to it for identity. It's rare the person that says, you know, I used to think this, then I saw this very articulate discussion on social media, and now I'm convinced of the alternate point of view. That almost never happens. But we go to it for identity. We want to put something out there in the pipeline And then what happens is all of our friends jump on and affirm and affirm and affirm. And so it's really just a way of us affirming what we already think, what we already feel, what we already believe, most of the time. I've seen this in myself as well. I'm guilty of it. But again, when you think of this topic, anger, in our culture today, and look at the text, it sounds like James is changing the subject again. But here's the thing. When When are we most prone to be angry? Well, 
whenever we feel the strain of going through a trial. Sadness or grief can easily turn into anger. This is when we become slow to listen, quick to speak, quick to get angry. Now, is anger always sinful? No. But many of us get angry about the wrong things expressed in the wrong way. You know, for some reason, anger is one of the only, is one of the only culturally acceptable emotions for men. You know, fear, sadness, can you say that, that you're, that you're afraid or that you're sad? As a man, well, maybe not as permissible. They might question your manhood over those two. But anger, well, you can be angry. You can be upset. That's okay for us to feel angry in our culture. Or, or you know, some people say things like, you know, I just, I, I just tell it like it is. Or I'm all about justice. Or I'm... I'm just blunt, or I'm from New York. (laughs) And we can't blame our personality for, I think, falling into sin in these areas. So Proverbs 14, verse 29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. So this person who's slow to anger, they, they have great understanding. Well, about what? Well, they understand that person may have just had a really bad day. Or that bad stuff just happens sometimes. Or that we sin just like everybody else. But if you notice here in James, in James, he's not simply talking about just being quick to listen to another person, although that is important. What does he say in verse 21? He says, receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. So what kind of listening is he talking about? Well, he's talking about listening to God's word. Now, it does follow if we struggle to listen to God, we'll struggle to listen to other people as well. But all that James covers here is bound by one underlying issue, and it's how we hear and how we respond to God's word. And this continues on in the next few verses. Verse 22, the gospel and self-deception, it says, but be doers of the word, And not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Now notice the continued use of the word deceive or deception in that passage. You'll see it again over in verse 26 in relation to bridling one's tongue. We're doing a series right now in our high school ministry called Lies Christians Believe. And these are the lies we've been talking about. God won't give me more than I can handle. God just wants me to be happy. Follow your heart. Believe in yourself. These are all lies that many of us fall prey to. These are lies that are out there in the culture that begin to infiltrate our faith. But this is not what James is talking about. The worst kind of deception we're, we can fall prey to is self-deception. And James describes it as it's, it's to read the word, to hear the word, but then do nothing with it. That person is self-deceived. And he uses the image of a mirror. You know, we look into a mirror so we can see what's wrong and then go do something about it. We would never look into a mirror, 
you know, see what's wrong and just walk away. Well, actually, that, that is what boys in junior high do, but don't ask me how I know that. But listen, we would never go, like, get something in our eye. Like, for me, I don't know if I have, like, extra long or thick eyelashes or whatever, but when they get it in my eye, it's, like, debilitating. It, it feels like a piece of shrapnel stuck in there. And I've got to go to the mirror. I will, like, limp or crawl to the mirror and find my way and I get the Q-tip out, and I got to sweep the eye and try to get the eyelash out of mine. It's always in that little crease, right in that little spot you can't get to. And I've got to get this thing out. And so you and I, we never go to a mirror and recognize there's a problem, confirm it, and then just walk away. That's not how we do life. And James is saying, that's not how you should do when it comes to listening and hearing the word of God. Sam Alvarez writes, listening is vital, but merely listening is just as foolish as not listening. So we go to the, the word of God, and it's like a mirror for us. So we read it, we study it, and then it reads us. We recognize things in our life need to change. We need to grow and be transformed. So we need to listen but it should lead to obedience. And look at verse 25 where he says the law of liberty. We don't typically put those two words together, law and liberty, do we? We don't put those in the same phrase usually. We think of laws as keeping us from liberty, but that's because we don't understand what true freedom is. Because we see freedom as this absence of restriction, a removal of all constraints. But in the Bible, real freedom isn't the absence of constraint, but it's the presence of the right ones. For example, you and I would never like take a fish out of the water to set it free because we know it's not made for that. It's made for the water. So you and I were made for a relationship with God. And so life apart from him is not freedom, but it's slavery. And so one of the, the great themes of James chapter one is how the gospel applies to our suffering. So if you're not yet a Christ follower, this question of suffering. You may have really wrestled with this question. And this may have kept you from the faith and kept you from wanting to follow after Christ. You think to yourself, I can't worship a God who allow me or other people I know and love to suffer in the way that he has. Or if you are a Christ follower, the experience of suffering may be tempting you to walk away from the faith. But I want to ask you this question. Would would rejecting God, but walking away from God, would that stop the suffering? That would just mean that you, you, you face the suffering without Jesus and without the Holy Spirit, without the body of Christ to help you and to help bring you peace and comfort. I think of all the people I, in our body right now that are suffering immensely and our friends over in the Ukraine, they're here but also over there and I can't imagine if you asked them this question. Like, would you rather be suffering right now like with Jesus or without Jesus? Would you rather be suffering right now with the Holy Spirit's help or without the Holy Spirit's help? Would you rather be suffering right now with the body of Christ by your side or be suffering alone? Because the reality is, the believer and the unbeliever, we all suffer. The question is, who do you want to suffer with? The words of C.S. Lewis are encouraging to me. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, 
speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So our prayer is that we won't run from God in suffering, but we'll let it wake us up. God, we thank you for these words of James. This is your brother writing these words to us. And we see so much of your thoughts in his thoughts. And we thank you that there's someone like him to encourage us in whatever we're walking through right now. God, I know the stories are many in this room, past, present. But God, I pray that we'd be open to the things that you want to add to our lives as we experience loss. God, show us the things. Give us some tangible things that we can even begin to see right now. Things that, like a real sense of your presence with us. A real understanding of your word. A more urgent prayer life. And God, may those things not just be the way things are during the suffering, during the trial. God, help it to have staying power. God, may there be a residual effect in our lives beyond that. And God, change us and grow us and make us more and more like you, Father. We pray this in your name. Amen.